Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 154 of my live chat. It is the 6th of April. Jesus, it's already April. Can you believe it? It's already April of 2023. I am back from sunny Miami, Florida. Well, really, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, <laughs> uh, which as far as I can tell is like very similar to Miami, except one is like where all the gringos live and then one is where I guess everybody else lives. I don't know. But um, Florida highways are crazy. I can tell you that. If you're wondering if the highways in Florida are fucking insane, boy, they are. They certainly are. But anyway, we have a lot to get to because UFC 287 is this weekend. Um, there's lots of other stuff going on, but obviously that's a huge mega event. We have a title fight in the main event. We have a title implications kind of fight in the co-main. It's a great card all the way down. So we'll talk about that and whatever else is on your mind. Thumbs up if you're watching. Yes, on YouTube. Please hit subscribe if you would be so kind as to do that. And uh, if you're listening to your podcast platform, uh, give me a nice review wherever you're listening. Yeah. So let's do this. Oh, we'll go for about an hour today as we do. I put up a post on youtube.com slash Luke Thomas in the community tab. Every Wednesday, you guys fill it up with questions. We'll go to those. You upvote which ones you like. You downvote which ones you don't. And uh, if you'd like to put a donation in, you're certainly under zero obligation to do it. But if you do it, we'll get to your questions. We'll put them on the screen at the end. Yeah? All right. By the way, uh, yeah, let's get this party started. And then I'll tell you a little bit about something that I want to tell you about. Let's go. I said this on MK yesterday, but I just want to repeat it here. I cannot overstate this. I don't think I'm overselling this at all. The room service diaries we did with Rashad Evans, I feel like is maybe the best interview I've ever done. Um, certainly, I feel like my best conversation with Rashad, and I've spoken to him countless times. I can't even remember how many times I've spoken to him, but... Um, it is amazing. Now, it's amazing not because of me or BC. We we play facilitator in that role. It's because of Rashad and uh, his transparency, his thoughtfulness really was incredible uh, to witness. I cannot wait for you guys to see that. I cannot wait for you to see. I really cannot wait. I'm t we, The first question out of my mouth, and we went long on it, was about the ayahuasca he told us every detail and everything that went into it and all of his thoughts and why he did it and what it did to him i mean it's just crazy and then we went from there to some of his best losses and best or i should say most impactful losses not his best ones but some of his best wins and um amazing what an amazing interview cannot wait for you to see that uh i also shot a bunch of other stuff we sat down with john anik which was really great we, we sat down with phil derue i also have some other stuff that we cooked up for you guys. Tomorrow's episode of MK is me and BC and Rashad doing a roundtable for UFC 287. It's basically a pregame preview. Rashad kills it in this thing. Kills it. Kills it. Um, so I'm really excited about the content coming out. I think you guys are really going to like it. Really can't wait for you to see it. And of course, here, after the fights, we're going to have a breakdown of the main event and whatever else stands up to uh, what you guys want to do for a breakdown. Yeah, it's going to be fun. All right, so without further ado, let's get this going, if we can, and get to some of your questions. Let me blow this up so you guys can see it. Yeah, here we go. Boy, they. Uh, if you're asking, hey, do they have billboards on the highway in Florida? 
uh, <laughs> for uh, gun retailers and manufacturers? The answer is yes. And uh, not just one or two, many of them, many of them. Also, Florida, one of the states in the union where you're not required to wear a helmet when you drive a motorcycle down the highway. Seems inadvisable and um, dumb as shit, but they do it because it's legal. So, but also Florida has like beautiful places to see. Many of the people, most of the people are very friendly. Food is really good in South Florida. So Florida's weird, man. It's weird. You might get shot going to a taco joint, but if you don't, it'll be a great, it'll be a great meal. <laughs> That's Florida really for you. Uh, and then some guy on bath salts might eat your face. So there we go. All right. With that in mind, let's get these questions going here, and I'll add this to the stream. Whoops, wrong one. There we go. Here we go. All right. Uh, from Keon, he asks, Luke, have you you have characterized Yanez uh, versus Font as a clash of two boxers. Are there any noticeable differences in their boxing games and approaches? Ooh, good question. And how do you think those differences will play out on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, to give you a really good answer, I would have to go through the tape and come up with something uh a little bit more specific, but in general terms, I would say a couple of things. One, they're both jab heavy, but it seems like to me that the jab of font is a little bit more of a power jab. Whereas for Yanez, it can be a power. Like it, the differences are not dramatic. I mean, they're very similar levels of fighter. They're very similar styles, but um, for me, for Yanez, his is a little bit more of a diverse jab. I mean, again, both guys use it in diverse ways, but for Yanez, it's li it's a little bit less of a power jab, although at times it can be a little more to set things up. Um, I feel like on a, on occasion, Yanez can play with stance switching a little bit more, which will give him sometimes some more dramatic angles. I think another big difference that folks sleep on is um, Font is a little bit more takedown willing. Um, he will take. I think. I mean, Yanez. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's pulled. Let me pull up the numbers here if I can. Uh, yeah, five metrics should have a breakdown actually because they're fighting this weekend, right? Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen Yanez even attempt a takedown, right? Not in the UFC anyway, maybe maybe somewhere else. Let's see, let me pull this up so you guys can see it here. Let's take a look. I'll blow it up right here. Here is um, fight metric. We'll blow this up again. Let's see here. Da -da 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 -da. Yes, look. Here, Yanez here on the right column. It's Font on the left column. Font is good for, okay, not much, but a, he's good for a takedown of fight. Okay, that's something. There, Yanez, nothing. And he has good takedown defense insofar as who he has fought, but he's not really fought anyone who's really, Davey Grant maybe he's got some pretty good takedowns. Um, and Font is a little bit kind of all over the place with accuracy and takedown defense, although he's fought some really good guys. Let's see the striking stats. Yeah, here's another big one. Uh, Font obviously gets hit. A little bit less. Boy, look at their output, though, huh? 6.83 versus 6.62. Very similar levels of output. Uh, striking accuracy font, a little bit more accurate. But again, I think some of that with Yanez is setup shots that are not designed to be accurate. So that, that number might be depressed a little bit. But defense, they're both about the same. That's pretty high. Anything close to 60% is pretty high. Uh, but Yanez gets hit a little bit more. That is something. Also, I will say this. I'll add one last note. I do believe... You know, again, both guys are very diverse mixed martial artists with a boxing kind of tendency. But I do believe, like, you go back in the Tony Kelly fight, there were certain, I think even jabs, but maybe I have to go back and double check, but certain kind of single-shot punches, linear punches, that Kelly was trying to throw where Yanez had um, 
he he answered it with a kick. And I think that makes him a little bit more slightly more diverse as a striker, I think, than Rob Font. But they're very similar. They're really they're, it's a great fight. Great fight. Two very skilled fighters. Um, I love that Font's been off a year and he's coming back. I like with his experience, he needed that. He did not need to stay in the rat race. So I think he's gonna be really fresh. Yan Yez is just red hot. And by the way, if you're like you're pronouncing his name wrong, it is Yan Yez. The N is actually an Enye. Uh, he just doesn't pronounce it because people botch it. But if if say whatever you want, I don't think he cares either way, but I'm going to try to make an effort to say his name correctly. Anyway, um, great fight, great fight. And dude, very winnable for Rob Font, by the way, like this is not some gimme fight at all. Like Rob Font's a, he's the genuine article in terms of like tough contenders in that bantamweight division, especially like, you know, obviously there's a lot of attention at the very top of bantamweight, which it should be. It's a great division, but, um, Dude, Fawn is a little bit of a forgotten name because obviously he's come off those two losses and they were like tough ones as well. Uh, but he's he's a very, very solid threat. I mean, I always go back to it. Like, uh, let me pull up his record, Rob Font. So Font went the distance with Aldo. He went the distance with Vera. Those He lost those fights. He went the distance with Asuncao and lost that one. He did get subbed out by Pedro Munoz. Fair enough, but this was all the way back in 2017. And then he went the distance with Lineker. So in all of his losses in the UFC, he's only been finished in one of them. He's a tough guy, dude. Tough, tough, well-rounded, experienced guy. It's going to be a great fight. Can't wait for that one. All right. Luke, do you think the UFC has ever told fighter A that fighter B didn't want to fight and vice versa just to appease them and have fighter A be more willing to accept a fighter, excuse me, a fight with fighter C because it works better for the company. Um, <laughs> I mean, are you asking if like they've committed some form of either illegality or malpractice? I, I I don't know. I'll just say this: the UFC, you know, will they pressure fighters to take fights? Well, they did do this, right? Like, remember when they offered? Who was it? They wanted an Alvarez Habib fight, and they offered bout agreements, but it was really just. For show, it was to put pressure on a different fight that they wanted to make. Um, you know, they've done stuff like that uh, on the record. I, I'm, I'm getting some of the mechanics of the story wrong, but, you know, handing out bout agreements that they don't really, um, they know they're not going to have to honor because one party's not going to sign it is, and they've done that. That's been on the record. So, you know, have they like made up stories that a guy rejected it? I, it's, I, I would have to have personal knowledge of that. And of all the things fighters have told me, they've never told me they found out the UFC. Frankly, I got to be honest. I don't know if any fighter has told me that any promoter has done that. Now, I'm sure it has happened. I'm sure it has happened in, in MMA history. I'm sure it's happened many times. But in terms of my conversations with fighters or coaches, I'm not sure they've ever told me that. I don't know if I've ever heard that. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I've just... It hasn't been either prevalent enough or that the fighters have not been aware of it enough such that it made it to my doorstep. And they've told me some pretty remarkable things. Great question. Love it. How big of a role do you believe uh, Izzy's wrestling will be in next weekend's bout? Do you believe he can get the job done this time simply by striking? No, I do not. If so, what techniques and strategies should he use to lock up the victory? Um, you know who wrote a bit of a good blueprint on that is actually Corey Sandhagen against Chito Vera, um, where 
I do think that they're just naturally going to have a bit of a stick and move kind of relationship on the feet. Now, at times, obviously, we, we've seen is he hurt, uh, Pereira? We have seen that. Let me I got a text coming in from make sure everything's all set. Yeah, um, I have seen that, uh, but I think that uh, you guys have seen it too. But I think the reality is. Uh, so there's two basic factors that Izzy's up against here, right? The way in which Izzy was able to beat the rest of that division, like the way in which he matched up with them, those dynamics do not really exist in the Pareto fight, right? Where So what am I talking about? Where we're having a guy who's a very gifted striker, much more so than, you know, forget Pareto for just a second, the rest of that division. And I know that Whitaker's very good, but we, you guys know what I'm saying. A guy who's got really, really, really high-level kickboxing experience, brings it to MMA, makes that the centerpiece of his style, is very crafty, full of feints, full of uh, uh, stance switches and angles and, you know, delayed timing. We've all seen it. So he's able to lord that over guys who just don't have that kind of ability. And so he has other deficiencies, right? Grappling is not his forte. Jiu-Jitsu is not necessarily his forte. But he sort of got good enough defensively to survive and attack in certain ways, like in the Gastelum fight when he was locking up triangles and whatnot, um, where you know he was able to kind of make it enough of a defensive strength where it didn't end up being like you know um, a losing liability. But it was never like a really offensively forward part of his game it was like really good striking and really good defense on the other side and for brad tavares and for kelvin gastelum and for robert whitaker although you know obviously it's a little you know it's a very very difficult fight but certainly for marvin Vittori, all those guys that was that was a good formula that's a very quite quite literally a winning formula against Pereira, it just simply doesn't work that way part of it is that um Obviously, he's able to check a lot of the leg kicks from Izzy, which is a big portion of his offense, both both in volume and everything else that it facilitates from exits and entries to, you know, other combinations and everything. He shut down a lot of that. I also think, like, another key component in all this thing is, like, dude, Pareda's physical size. Like, Izzy is, you know, can Izzy bench more than Marvin Vittori or something like that? You know, I don't know. Maybe Vittori's stronger in that way. But I, I I never really felt, maybe in the first fight, but that was also a skills differential issue. I never really felt like against the rest of those middleweights that Izzy was physically outgunned. Certain guys might be stronger, but he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a worthy adversary in that regard. And then you add technical growth, and he becomes a real big problem in the takedown defense department. Uh, against, against Pereira, I don't think he's completely outmatched, but there's a much bigger differential. Right, Pereira is huge for the weight class and is very strong and is strong in a lot of the same positions that Izzy would be strong at. Like Izzy's got a pretty good clinch, but you know, Pereira's going to be physically stronger there. So that's really what he's up against. He has to he has to beat Pereira in a way that he didn't necessarily have to beat the other opponents in terms of the broader dynamics in play. So it would be very foolish to say you have to fight like somebody new. Right, you have to you have to win in a totally new way. You're simply asking too much of a guy. Like, hey, we need you to just be a different fighter. You can't really do that at this stage. That's not really what you have. You have to kind of dance with what brought you. But there are some meaningful adjustments you can make. And I thought Corey Sanhagen really threaded that needle between uh, sometimes being very offensive and moving forward, sticking and moving when he had to, and then mixing in takedowns and top control and riding time the whole way through. Now, obviously, Izzy wanted to do maybe a little bit more of that in the first fight and couldn't, and maybe he has polished it up since then. But the other part of that is, you know, dude, if 
<laughs> I, I, I will make this point on tomorrow's show. Like if someone said if two guys were in a street fight and one was, um, you know, a blue belt, the other one was a brown belt, or even like just a jujitsu match. Um, but you know, like one guy, let's say the, that guy who was a blue belt was much bigger. So then, you know, it's, it's a little bit more competitive or whatever, you know, and someone said there's a rematch who has more adjustments to make. It's going to be the blue belt, right? Uh, because they have so much more to learn that actually enables them to get much better when you're already closer to the finish line of technical proficiency. You're only adding small details thereafter. Dude, Pereira has, what is he, eight fights in or something? I mean, he's got a lot of room to still get better. His takedown defense, from what I've seen, is not great. It is not great. We will see how it looks on Saturday. Uh, and certainly it's been good enough to win this far. But, you know, Izzy's point that this guy, like the reason he got fast track is because I am already here. He got kind of lit up on the internet for that. But to me, that seems exactly correct. We knew that Pereira got fast tracked because they wanted to make that fight given their history. And they did give him Sean Strickland, which is a tough fight, but they didn't give him really the guys that Izzy had to go through. Izzy had to go through Vittori twice and Whitaker twice. All this shit he had to go through. Uh, well, he had to beat Whitaker once to get the title, but you get the idea. You know, he had to go through, I think, a much tougher run, but they wanted to fast track it to make the fight in, in all's well that ends well. But, you know, dude, he still has a lot of room to grow. The other part of here is that he's a little bit older, so what's really possible on that end, too? It's a lot of really, really interesting questions. But I believe that, yeah, takedowns have to be a more forward part. But the problem is if you put it too far forward, then it ends up, I think, disrupting the overall game plan. It makes you fight in an uncomfortable way. You want to be in your comfort zone as much as possible, in your rhythm as much as possible. And I think it can disrupt that. It can disrupt energy management. It can disrupt a lot of things if you go from zero to 60. And like, oh, we, we, we struck this whole time. We're just going to wrestle this time. Uh, that could be bad. That can be real bad. So that, that, that more nimble, nuanced way that I thought Corey Sandhagen approached it. If you get something like that, he can win. We already saw he he beat the dude the majority of the time last time. And in the second fight, and you could even argue in the first fight, like, dude, Izzy has won lots of rounds against this guy. Um, it's just that he hasn't been able to find a way to really dominate him, to truly close the show. I think getting in more of that, making some of those things where you were very, very strong defensively, you have to take it to the next level and make those an offensive weapon. Again, what are the levels in jujitsu? But this applies really to combat sports more generally. Survive, defend, attack. Survive, defend, attack. Survive, check. Defend on the wrestling side and the grappling side, check. Attack a little bit, uh, but there's got to be much more, much more. And if you can weave those strengths into the existing ones, the existing ones have a lot of value. Let's put some more in there um, to get going. The, the Corey Sanhagen versus Chito Vera blueprint, such that it can be pulled off, is uh, which is an open question, is, is the one to go to. All right, here we go. Luke, with the WWE-UFC merger, do you think it will affect the production of the UFC product to reflect more of the WWE style? So, for example... More flashy fighter entrances, camera angles, etc. Thanks for your time. Well, it is very hard to say what it will look like. I, I, let's be very clear. Anyone who's like, I go, I know exactly what this is going to look like. I'm skeptical of that, and that would be even true of folks who are in control and endeavor, folks who are going to be part of this publicly traded entity uh, between UFC and WWE that they're going to create this 21 billion dollar plus organization so I think there's just a lot of uncertainty and unknown because no one's quite got the 
the specifics worked out. There's some broad details about why they're trying to intertwine the brands, but how that happens, how that mix gets made remains unclear. I don't know about this. Now, again, you might see some of it, but the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical about it is because if you actually go back to um, early Zufa era UFC, so around the 30s and more particular UFC 40s. And so, so for example, we're on the 20 year uh, almost anniversary of the UFC's last fight and event in Miami um, uh, between, uh, where I think it was, was it Hugh Shirk? I, I forget who fought on that card, but um, if you notice during that time, and they eventually got away from it, if you notice during that time, they would have pyrotechnics and they had a big stage and they had a big like screen behind. And the UFC's actually like cons- made a concerted effort to go away from that, which is why Strike Force went back to it. Strike Force did like that thing, which, by the way, obviously, you know, that is a pro wrestling. Um, uh, dynamic that i don't think is necessarily good or bad for mma it's just really a preference um a lot of the japanese promotions pride would do stuff like that i think it worked really well for them it was great for mma in that context it's not a good or a bad question it's just what the power players like and the ufc made an effort to go away from that there have been times that they've thrown in some creative elements when they had Sinead o'connor and then the uh the douchebag from stained do the walkouts for Connor and Chad Mendez when they fought, like they'll play a little bit with it and it works really well. Maybe you might see like not a complete change, but if the volume is at seven, maybe they'd turn it up to an eight or a nine, you know, kind of a thing on occasion. But Dana has been, Dana doesn't like that stuff. Dana doesn't like the big theatrics. He doesn't like, he likes it for my tastes. And again, it's really just a taste issue for my taste. He likes them a little boring, a little bland. Um, so as long as he's there, I don't think so, but that's really the other component here, you know, with this merger and the, and the growth of Nick Khan and potentially other executives that could come on board in the future or rise within the organization, like Dana White's not going to be in control forever. And if Endeavor is going to hold onto this property for a while, there's a question of like who eventually takes over UFC and what changes do they make to the product? So that's really another component. It's very hard to predict. But something you have to keep in mind. So as long as Dana is there, you might see stuff like that. You can't rule it out, but I'm skeptical of that. I think the bigger part you're going to see, and potentially right away, is just two things. One, like co-mingling of promotion, where fighters are on WWE broadcasts, WWE stars are on UFC broadcasts, you know, promoting this and doing media tours that way, or there to be seen or just in some kind of way use their celebrity to raise the profile of events i think you'll definitely see that uh, for sure and i think the other thing i've brought up before is like the gable steveson equation where they are separate entities wwe and ufc obviously they would have the same parent company as owner but i wonder if that might make things easier when he wants to make the mma transition if it might really kind of just direct him there and maybe he would have gone there anyway but you're just thinking like if you can get someone in-house in one direction or the other and they want to go the other way whether mma to pro wrestling or vice versa does the co uh does the fact that the two entities have the same owner demand it facilitate it what does that what does the talent exchange look like Beyond that, though, man, uh, it really becomes anyone's guess. But I think over time, you're definitely going to see an intertwining of the brands in a very, very heavy promotional um, direction. Uh, Let's see. Luke, with recent advances in AI, how do you see this potentially having a role in MMA judging? I don't. 
I saw PFL give an AI-generated score. Get the fuck out of here for each round. And I wondered if you thought this could be in- integrated or even replace the 10-point must system. Yeah, no, I don't. Like, <laughs> guys, generative AI is not great. Um, How do I say this? Okay, there's so many problems with this. Number one... The athletic commissions are going to be the last people to technologically adapt, right? I mean, if they could make their off, if they could make officials within the commission work on a typewriter, they would, right? Or even, you know, the the feather of a bird, dip it in some ink and write on it. Like if they could make that their default practice, they would, right? So that's the first thing I'd say. That's who you're talking about here. You're talking about absolute luddites in the worst way possible. But in this particular case, like, dude, PFL just puts. I, I like PFL. I have friends who work in PFL. I enjoy. I, I have a lot of respect for what they're trying. Sean O'Connell is great. Um, you know, again, I have a friend who works there. Like, I, 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 I really enjoy their product for the most part. But they make up bullshit numbers, or they put numbers on the screen that are just of no relevance. Like, what's the speed of a strike, dude? Has anyone ever given a fuck about that? Uh, or just sort of numerically counting certain kinds of strikes, which on occasion can be beneficial, but they do it in a way that is egregious and unhelpful, right? So there's that. But generative AI is just... I don't know why people have... Generative AI to me is deeply unimpressive. I've not been very impressed with what I've seen. Like I've played a couple of interesting games with chat GPT and whatnot. And I certainly recognize that we have to keep a very open mind about the possibilities of the future. But as it stands today, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what's so impressive about it. It chat GPT will literally uh, make up things that aren't true that a simple Google search could fix. Um, and I realize that there's other generative AI places. You can go to Dolly. You could go to, you know, ChatGPT. There's other ones. But it's just an imitation engine. You know, I I am very, very skeptical that anyone could put together any kind of program that could monitor um, activity and then make a qualified score. It simply doesn't have any of those cognitive well it doesn't have any cognitive capacities it doesn't have any of those kinds of reasoning capabilities whatsoever they call them generative ai it's it's just they're parrots they're just um they just suck up what information is out there and then do like a programmed version of what they think the next thing is supposed to be and sometimes you can get really helpful information a lot of times you get very bad information utterly unreliable information and in places where people are like oh we're making big strides with ai like in music again it's just imitation that they're doing and piecing everything together they're taking all the sounds they otherwise hear and then just reformatting it in a way that is you know follows follows along the programming lines but it's just based off of everyone else's information do i see a role for ai in scoring i mean i guess you could say maybe like interpreting other people's scores and what that would mean but i the answer to the question is fuck no. I don't see it at all because if even if there was good technology, the commission would be very slow to adopt it. And also, while there is certain uh, forms of AI, generative AI or AI in general that can be quite helpful, generative AI to me is not impressive, not very helpful, 
not very good and interesting. Um, sometimes kind of fun. Certainly, we got to put more effort into it, but worthless as it relates to this particular issue. Like, <laughs> you know, I was one of these guys who for a long time believed like, who's going to drive a car better, AI or primates, like a computer or primates. And in the end, I always like a computer is always going to be the primate. Well, you know, in certain computational tasks or whatever, uh, and or processing tasks. But in terms of the actual reasoning required to do it, it turns out that the apes trying to program the computer to beat other apes, uh, we are not very good at that. We are not very good at that. So, and I realize generative AI can be quite different from what I'm describing, but. I am intrigued by AI, but I am, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, AI is going to take over. Show me which one people are, show me the Skynet that everyone's worried about. Because from what I've seen, you can literally ask ChatGPT. You guys know uh, Nicholas Taleb? He he did uh, a ChatGPT journey and got them to make up a battle, I think in the Crusades or over certain parts of historical Muslim territory that never happened. It never happened. It just made it up. Just made it up. Yeah, I mean, as long as AI is doing shit like that, it's not really a relevant question for uh, for any of our purposes. All right. Look, if fighter pay had been increased to around 50% of revenue back when this really started becoming a talked about issue, let's say fighters unionized 10 years ago, okay, what other changes would have occurred the way as a result, along the way, excuse me, as a result, and would the sport look today? It's very difficult to say. Um, Two things, though, or let me say one thing first. If they had a union 10 years ago, it's not clear at all that they would get up to 50% of revenue. Like that, I, I, You can make an argument that the people producing the product by which everyone else is profiting from deserve 50%, but how they could actually negotiate that without, um, as John Nash has pointed out, without a real... Um, sort of free, like a real free agency between teams in a league, which is how numbers get bumped up, it'd be hard to do. Now they could, uh, there, there are ways to potentially force some kind of hand, but the idea that it would have been automatic, I just want to point out the idea that it would have been automatically 50% if a union had been created in 2013 is, is probably not true. Okay. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is what would it have looked like? I mean, it would have looked like what you get from a lot of boxing promotions, basically. Um, what does, I won't say golden boy cause golden boy is not, okay. How about PBC? You would get something like PBC or, or even top rank where top rank, they produce a lot of the same assets that every other promoter does. They have a vibrant YouTube channel. They're putting out social clips on all these various places. They do media tours. They, they have live events, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they're not able to invest the amount of money in other projects that the UFC is where the UFC is building themselves these grand facilities and sometimes obviously doing them with very much the fighter's interest in mind. Let's be very clear about that, the performance Institute, but these are also designed ultimately to benefit themselves, right? Cause if you have ha uh, healthier, happier fighters over time, that's going to make them, especially if they can get these services for free and they're like, well, this doesn't come out of my check, you know, although in a way that it actually does, um, you would get less of those kinds of things. Um, you would get less of, um, you would get less of the vanity or other side projects that you just don't see other promoters engaging in is basically the idea I was pointing out to you. And then listen, 
it's not to say that there wouldn't be a cost to that. Like, for example, one thing that's kind of interesting is the UFC ability, ability to put a performance institute in Mexico, go into that market, begin to really massage it over time, and then send people from it to go to Jackson's and whatnot. I'm sure boxing promoters do this on occasion. In fact, I know for a fact they do. But the UFC has really kind of just primed the pump there, right, to get that market going. Would they have been as able to do that with if they had to share more of their revenue with their fighters? There's a pretty good case to be made that probably not, probably not. Certainly not in the same way that they did. But I keep coming back to this, man. I keep this is this is the story. The story is not that we need to design MMA as efficiently as possible for promoters to maximize gains. That's just really not what I believe. I, you you definitely need to have uh, profitable promoters. You need to have very profitable promoters to do big fights. Uh, and you need a lot of different promoters who can service a lot of different needs, whether they're regional ones, whether there are certain kinds of fighters, whether there are certain kinds of weight classes or relationships, whatever. You need, you need all of those things. But the most important thing to me is to make sure that the individual fighter is paid for the individual effort in which he is risking his life. Period. Period. Man, I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is the problem with MMA fan turnover. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it, but here's a big one, a really big one. One is that we have to keep making the case for fighter pay every, well, all the time, but especially on these new waves of fans who come up and then they're gone after five years, right? That that roughly, that five-year cycle, it forces us to have these old debates over and over and over again because new people come along and think that they're the first ones to discover these issues on the promoter side, and we have to keep going back to the same problems. That's one. But the other problem is if you stick around long enough, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see some of your very favorite fighters get unlucky or something bad happens to them. They get knocked out in a fight, whatever. They're going to get old much faster than you realize. They're going to get to the, not the full end of their career, but they're going to get past the point where they're going to get any money in uh, big checks. Like they're not going to get grand checks anymore. They, they can make some money, but it's going to be small potatoes based on what they were making before. And they're going to be left with CTE. They're going to be left with devastating arthritis, fucked up necks, backs, shoulders, you name it. They may or may not have health care for any of those things. Their career window is that big. They didn't make hardly all and that much money. And now it is, for all intents and purposes, in terms of being a major winner, it is over. It is over. You are going to see this a lot. You're going to see it with the current guys in the UFC. Not all of them, of course, but many of them, you're going to see this. Most of them, in fact, you're going to see this. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And what you begin to realize over time is that what I think a lot of consumers want and what Wall, Street's, Wall Street wants, remember, Wall Street obviously has a big say in these publicly traded companies. What they want is obviously maximum revenue for the promoter. And there is really just no consideration about what this does to the people who are actually making the product. The UFC does not make the product. They facilitate it. The fighters make the product they're the ones who are quite literally risking life and limb and um devastation to produce what we enjoy to me it is a moral necessity that you pay them everything they are owed through the course of this by making sure that there are market conditions where they can leverage their talent and leverage their skills and leverage their accomplishments and their resumes basically you that that to me is the most important thing. So inside that space, you want 
promoters to do well in accordance with that. And they do. You want promoters to be able to facilitate and find new people and go to new countries and do all kinds of fun stuff. And they can. Uh, to me, what you have is just a grand imbalance. Um, just wait. Pick your favorite fighter. If it's not Conor McGregor or someone else who, like, you know, the two or three other names you could add who have made a lot of money, uh, just wait. Just wait. Somebody you really like, somebody you really care about is going to get old like that, didn't make the money they want to make, and now it is basically over, and their bodies are trashed, their brain is in trouble, and they didn't even get paid for it. Here we go. Luke, I believe you mentioned that you regularly watch BJJ instructionals. I watch all different kinds. To be fair, any different kind, any composite sport, I watch wrestling, jiu-jitsu, boxing, boxing from this style, boxing from this country, kickboxing from that. I mean, you name it. This clinch tutorial, this one on foot sweeps, this one on pinning, this one on back to uh, all of them. Would you mind sharing? Here we go. Some of your favorite ones could be on BJJ Fanatics or another platform. I'll give BJJ Fanatics a, a run here because I can't pull it up in the incognito window, but I will tell you which ones I like. I've gotten a lot of value out of. So here is my answer to that question as best I can tell you. Now, let me get this going. Um, I've wanted to sign up for uh, JFlow, uh, Justin Flores's. He has this uh, site where he mixes judo and wrestling. He was decorated in both into one kind of style for MMA. And uh, everything he puts out for free, I've seen, I've been like blown away by. But let me think of some good ones that I like here. The Footwork Blueprint, Blueprint by Trevor Whitman is great. I really like that one. Um, Standing to Ground by John Danaher is really great. Zach Esposito's Complete Guide to the Underhook, tremendous. Anything Gordon Ryan, like Gordon Ryan, hate Gordon Ryan, anything he puts out as an instructional is absolutely excellent, and I really like it. I'm going to say it. You can laugh if you want. Both James Krause and Mike Brown have very good wall wrestling um tutorials uh who's else has got some good ones uh let's see oh um lachlan giles has one on k guard um javier vasquez on ground and pound safety um habib's is pretty good it's a little bit basic but it's pretty good um yeah i mean i could go on from there that's enough to get you started all of those would be great all of those are great all those all those and it's not like Every time you watch it, you it's like all, all of this is revelatory. Like a lot of it you might know, some of it you might know, some of it might be good info, some of it might not, but I get at least something out of all of them. And sometimes I get like, even if it's just one big insight into something, um, it makes a huge difference. It can make a huge difference in how you see everything else, you know. Um, kind of the same question here about WWE and Endeavor and how it might play out into UFC. Since I kind of already answered it, I'll skip that one. All right, here's a question. Look at the following 30 and younger prospects at Bantamweight. What do you see their ceiling as? And what is something you think each has to improve on individually? Yanez, Nurmagomedov, you know, this is a lot to know. Jesus Christ, man. Um, all right, ceiling for okay, Umar's ceiling is, let me go back here. So Umar's ceiling, I mean, you've got to put him in. It, it's, it's too early to say that any of these guys can be champion, but the ones that I would think would be reasonable contenders there would be Nurmagomedov, maybe Simone and Yanez too. Um, but it's just too early to tell. I mean, we're talking about top five guys here at least. 
yeah, all of these guys are pretty top five. Jack Shore, I'm a little bit, I want to see, um, he obviously has a lot of skill, but I want to see what he looks like back at 135. Um, all of them have top five potential, all of them. But, dude, they could get in a car crash. I mean, I remember when Frank Mir was the, you know, one, of, if not the best heavyweight on earth, one of them. And then he got in a motorcycle crash and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And then he got back there, or he was pretty close to back there. But, dude, like, you know, where what they're these guys are all very good now and i think nurmagomedov could maybe beat the you know contend for a title this year or next but they have to they have to prove it like you can't just assume that because they look really good luke are there any current fighters who appear to be journeyman gatekeepers that you think can still make a resurgence i.e guys like masvidal and Oliveira who were around for a while before putting it all together and getting a title shot so what I mean, they, people call those guys gatekeepers and journeymen. Dude, a journeyman—that's not a journeyman. A journeyman's got like more of a five hundred record. But okay, certainly in boxing that's true, or even sometimes like a negative record. But they've got like a gazillion fights, and it's like Travis View was a journeyman. You guys know who Travis View is? It's spelled um, like W I U F F, something like that, or maybe W U I F F. Travis View, UFC veteran. He fought everywhere, man. This dude fought absolutely everywhere. Him and. Uh, Travis Fulton as well, the Ironman. Those are journeymen. People say journeymen like there's a bunch of journeymen in the UFC. There's It depends on your definition, and there is a workable kind that can apply to UFC fighters, but I often think it's mostly misused. Um, and gatekeepers. Again, it will depend on what you mean by gatekeeper, but if you're talking about guys who are kind of always hovering around the top 10, sometimes top 5, but certainly inside that top 15 space, they beat a lot of other guys, sometimes very impressively, and may have lost to really good ones, but sometimes gave them a good fight, you know, along the way. Just couldn't quite get over the hump, but then eventually they do. Like, basically, that's Masvidal's career for a long time, uh, up until 2019, right? Um, it's that 32 to 35 range, typically, that I've seen, where they begin to put it all right around 32, sometimes 33 years old. They've got all this experience. They they do have already some some pieces of the game are already actually very good. You know, like Dustin Poirier before he really broke through his boxing was really good. Um, his jiu-jitsu was pretty good, but it wasn't as as I think. There's still you know against Oliveira wasn't enough or Nurmagomedov, but in general it's still pretty good. Um, you know, and I just think he's cleaned up a lot and that helped that that helped him really make a move. Um, you're looking for someone in that profile. You're looking for someone in that 32, 33 range who's ready to begin to put the experience together, the lessons learned together. Um, you know, I, I, for example, like Gilbert Burns obviously was a jiu-jitsu world champion, but he had ups and downs in his career. Like 155 was a bad weight class for him. He got stopped a couple times. Like, you know, he had to really work on it. And then when he got into the right weight class, you know, around 32, 33, I think, what is he, 35, 36 now, he really began to put it together. It's like it takes some time for certain guys who aren't like hot shots right out of the gate, or in the case of Gilbert Burns, like an imbalanced skill set. It takes both wins and losses and experience and trial and error. Like, what do I like? What am I good at? What did I learn from this fight? What did I learn from that fight? And the ones who take the losses in terms of lessons very well, man, they are able to begin to piece that together and become something special. Like Diego Fajeda had a bit of a moment in the sun like that. Where all of a sudden at age like 34, 35, you're like, damn, like he's really, he's pretty good. And that kind of fell short too in the end, but he definitely had a bit of a, a, a late push there. So it's that kind of profile you're looking for in there. In terms of who that is, you know, we can go through, but that's, that's the general answer.
Uh, Izzy usually gets a lot of credit for his activity, and rightfully so, but is it possible that turning around so soon for the um, Alex rematch may actually be a bad idea? In such a short time, what improvements or integration of new tactics can one make? Yeah, I don't know. I would have thought that I'd put some time between it too um, because for a lot of reasons. I think some of the things that I would have wanted if I was in Izzy's camp, I think one of the things I would have wanted him to work on, I would have wanted a little bit more time to work on him. Also, you know, uh, Pareto's getting older. That's why that's a part two. Like on the one hand, he's got more to learn by virtue of how new he is to MMA, relatively speaking. But on the other side, as I mentioned before, like he's getting up there in age. Like that's not, you can't ignore that either in this weight class anyway. Now, I guess if he goes to 205 or even heavyweight or something, that's maybe a different conversation. But um, I do think that, the, I mean, listen, Eugene Behrman is a brilliant tactician. Um, would love the opportunity to speak with him. Haven't gotten one uh, regarding this fight or the last one. So I don't really know where their heads are at in this camp. Um, I, I I just tend to think I go back to the Corey Sandhagen thing. I really believe uh, getting to the body lock, getting behind his elbows, um, t- getting to the back, uh, even in a standing position, like just getting out of the line of fire, making him uncomfortable, making him work on his balance, making him wrestle to his hands. That, that would be a big one for me, man. I would want, I would definitely want to get to a body lock, get behind him, and then get behind his armpits with a grip, leaning behind him and forcing him uh, to get wrestled to his hands. I would want to put so much weight on his hands, not just because that's what you want to do in that position, but because I want to make his arms absolutely filled to the brim with as much blood as I possibly could really fatigue him out. Um, I think that, you know, that's, that's the way I would be looking at it. But like, given the time that has elapsed, has enough of that, has there been enough to make those kinds of adjustments? I guess we'll see on Saturday. I I think in a perfect world, I would have said, you got to wait, but you know, he stayed active during that meteoric rise. I think he kind of likes that pacing. Um, I don't think he wants to do this late into his career anyway. So like, if he can't get it done now, then I think he's kind of probably on some level at peace with it. Um, but yeah, I would have waited. I would have waited a little bit for sure. Um, but in short, what improvements in the integration can he make? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to be, uh, he, he really cannot run from the problem. He has to go into it. You know, you can't stick and move your way on this one completely. Some, some of that a little bit, but I think he's going to have to be in Pareto's face a little bit more. I think he's going to have to be making him work a little bit more. There's just, it, it has to be more offensively dynamic. Did you guys see the, the, uh, the, piece that was written by Richard Mann from Fight Metric, where basically he said that like if you look at Izzy's output, it was right on par with what he normally does. The problem was he got hit a lot more than he normally does. He had a negative dif- striking differential. And um as long as you're backing up and you're kind of getting a lot of your for Izzy, you're getting a lot of your leg kicks checked or whatnot, it's just gonna be difficult. It's gonna be difficult to get that offense going. So that's why to me, man, you've really got to mix it up. It's not one or the other, but a really key mix. Can he do that? Can he wrestle to the uh, to the to the waist? Can he force him to his hands? Can he take the back? I don't know. We're gonna find out. Luke, do you anticipate an even better version of Poetan in this fight? Yes. If he can develop takedown defense similar to Izzy's, who at middleweight beats him? Hamzat is the only fighter I can think of. Um, you know, it's a little early to say about whether Hamzat or Bo Nickel, but certainly you would put them on the on the potential short list of guys who have that possibility. Yeah, I do expect Poetan to be better. I mean, this is the sort of interesting part. There's at least one 
one way to look at this fight, and again, we won't know until the fight whether this is true, but one way to look at this fight is the if you were Izzy, the last fight was the one where you should have been like all in on the wrestling. And now that he probably has a pretty clear idea that there's going to be more wrestling this time, which I think there probably will, um, that he knows that that has to be an even bigger part of what he does. And he's fight over fight, like the guy's training hard. And he again, remember, it's much easier to learn wrestling defense or even, I should say, wrestling defense kind of comes first. Again, survive, defend, attack, right? So it's 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 very conceivable that he could be a lot better on the defensive end in this fight um and be very ready for him and like the window to use that was the last fight and not in this one that is what that is at least one very plausible way this could go a very plausible way this could go but you know i don't know man vittori i think is still figuring things out he's still young and i think he's vittori's gonna be one guy to watch in his early 30s because i think he might have a technical breakthrough he's kind of leveled out but lots of guys level out and plateau in their journeys and then they take these like giant leaps afterwards at certain points he, he might he might be due for one not immediately but um before too long luke do you feel given leon's performance versus kamaru that he should be the favorite versus colby i don't i don't not necessarily if he were the favorite i would understand i'm gonna guess that they're pretty close i would understand a case either way and the reason why is you're right you could look at the last performance and you could say man if kamaru can't take him down and he was able to just pop back up immediately and barely spend any time underneath and like barely suffer in relatively speaking any ground and pound like yeah you should definitely put all your eggs in your back in the basket on that guy on the other hand some of the things that Colby does are a little bit different. Like go back to the Robbie Lawler fight. Colby has no problem taking the back and then working from the back. Remember how many times? And it was like a half. He, he wouldn't necessarily have both hooks in. It would almost be like a like a kind of like a, not even exactly a Turk, but like a leg ride where he would mo- be mostly on the back. He could bail if he had to, but he was attacking the neck enough where Lawler had to address it, right? That could very much be a thing. That could very much be a thing where he just takes the back. And some of the ways in which Leon stands up exposes him from the back. So they're not the same guy. I mean, again, it's like the, the Rob Font and Adrian Yanez comparisons. Like, they're very similar, but when you get to those little details, those can actually make a big difference And I will fight plays out one way or the other. It's similar with Colby and Kamaru, where, yes, they're wrestling heavy. They have ridiculous cardio. They're more volume guys, blah, blah, blah. You know, all those kinds of things. But Colby will take certain positions that Kamaru does not, that a lot of what Leon showed could just be stuff he showed because it was Kamaru-specific. The question is, was it Kamaru-specific because he was fighting Kamaru? Or did he use those things because he'd use them against anyone and he just happened to be fighting Kamaru? You know, uh, we shall see. I think that's the big question, but I can understand why Colby would be the favorite. I don't, and people are like, well, if he'd be the favorite against Leon, then what do you have to say about him being the number one contender and getting the title shot? Because the, they, 
Like, dude, look who look who Canelo was fighting. He's fighting John Ryder, and everyone like is like, oh, that's bullshit. That's just fucking mandatory, man. Why is John Ryder a mandatory? And lots of guys become mandatory for bullshit reasons. But there are a lot of times guys become mandatories for very good reasons because the beat they beat people they were supposed to beat. We have this weekend coming up. Sebastian Fundora is supposed to be fighting Jermel Charlo, but he's having injury issues, so that's a different thing. But, you know, he's defending this interim strap against Brian Mendoza. He beat Lubin, like what, like a, almost two years ago? Not quite, but... Like, you get to that slot because you did the work. The job of the, the the responsibility of the champion is to defend against the most deserving contender. And the most deserving contender can only be defined by what they have done in the division. And that's measured a few ways. But the recency around that is one of the most important ones. And, and Bilal Muhammad's resume is just vastly better in that regard. Um and more deserving anyway, relative to Colby's. Like it's an easy, it's a very simple argument to make. So, and also like, you know, there is some skepticism to be made about Colby. Like he's older now. Can he put up the same output? You know, again, are those things that Leon did were just for Camaro, but he's got plenty of stuff for Colby too. We, we shall see. There's reasons to think that Colby would get his ass kicked. I, I, I'm just pointing out, I can understand why some odds makers might have trepidation about it, but that he might be a worthy adversary is not defined because of what the odds makers say or what we might imagine. It is the only thing you can really base that on is what they have done, and more importantly, what they have done recently. That's that's the game. That's the that's the gig. Can you predict two negatives and two positives for fighters that could come from the WWE Endeavor merger for the fighters? Ugh. Well, for me, it's shame and embarrassment that I work in an industry where that's a thing. <laughs> I'm teasing y'all. Relax. Um, it's too hard to say. It's really way too early. Do I see Pereira fighting all the way up to heavyweight in the future? Possible. Definitely a light heavyweight, right? Like he's How would he not kick the tires on that? That seems inevitable. Heavyweight, a little more debatable. Mm -mm -mm. How do you see a hypothetical matchup between Pereira and John Jones? John Jones would beat the f dog shit out of him. <laughs> like I like Pereira. Like he's great, man. Like he's he's fun. He's terrifying, but he's fun. John Jones would demolish him. Demolish him. Um, I'm actually, I like this one here. Look, being the same age as you, I'm starting to encounter a new generation of people in my profession, which I love dearly and think is the most important professions, uh, one of the most important professions ever. Okay. Who don't seem to hold the same work ethic, responsibility, and pride in the profession. Do you encounter the same in your profession? And if so, what do you do to ease the desire to rage? I don't feel it as much in MMA because like, if you want to work in MMA media, you're not going to last unless you're willing to suffer a lot. Like it's, you're, you know, and I, I, None of this I say for like, oh, for sympathy. I not, this is not in any way an exercise in woe is me. It's not what I mean. But it's the competition for it, believe it or not, is actually quite intense in terms of who can last. Um, the pay is not great. And like you can't make headway unless you really fully make gains in the industry in terms of people you could talk to. And depending on your, on your beat, like, uh, you know, news you can break or whatever. Like it takes... A long time and so you know i don't look around at my co-workers and think they're lazy like i know they're hus if anything they're overworked and underpaid so there's that 
but I, I don't know what I don't know what um, industry you work in, but I I would caution too strongly to think this uh, again. I would I would caution against thinking this way. From my generation, and even now, you just still see a lot of this in like the weirdo hustle culture guys. And you know, I listen, I live it too. Like, here's one of the problems with making your hobby your profession or your interests your profession is that you no longer have outside interests. Now that's less of a problem for me, but they do become hard to maintain. Like all the extra things I like to do, like, you know, um, if, if what you used to do was go and be an accountant and then go do BJJ and then watch the fights, what happens when you're no longer an accountant and now you're actually going to the fights and everything else? Like everything is just in one world. There's no, there's no divide between them. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing for people. Not, not for everyone. Maybe for certain people. Maybe it'll be good for me in the end. I don't really know. We'll, we'll see. But um, I think that's sort of one problem with, with well, it's a, it's a separate kind of consideration. But here's the point I wanted to make. My generation got preached to, and I listened to the idea that, like, you know, your, your, your true future will be predicted by how hard you work and you really got to work hard and you really got to give it to the, you know, do more than everyone else and like do 10 times what the employer asks you to do. And like for a long, long time, you know, that was how a lot of my generation operated. And now we're getting to the point where our kids are in school and, you know, we're middle-aged and we're like, man, a lot of the stuff they told us about hard work and what it gets you is not true. It is true that over time, if you and I are talented exactly the same and I work hard, I will go further. And I also believe that hard work can create its own luck. But I also believe that like there are times in your career where it will very much make sense to put the foot on the gas and yes, not go out as much, not hang out with other people as much, really focus on your craft, really focus on your future, having a vision for yourself, having a goal, whether it's law school, whatever. I do think that's true, but they want to keep you trapped in that mentality forever. And the things they say comes from it. I mean, I can just tell you like that is just there's all so much of that. It's not true. Your job is not going to love you back. Your boss is not going to love you back. And there'll become a point where you gave everything to this job. You, and then getting back to the previous point, you made it your life in certain cases. Like I've made my passion my job. And, you know, some of the best stuff in life comes from that. But at the same time, uh, you put, you dump all of this in and then it just blows up in your face and you get laid off after 15 years. Like my friend Nate over at Bloody Elbow after nearly, you know, almost 20 years at SB Nation slash Vox Media and they just let him go with 15 minutes notice or some shit, you know. In the end, they'll just, they'll just blow it up in your face. So like I get that the younger generation is a lot more cynical about the the lies that we were told about some of the perceived guarantees that come from hard work hard work is important hard work is real um, being disciplined is important being disciplined is real and putting the two together will take you further but you do not need to buy into some of the corporatism and ladder climbing and credentialism and then putting your other life to the side forever and every dude i just I completely punted on my thirties. I barely saw, for, I mean, compared to my other friends, I barely saw my friends in my twenties, my thirties, excuse me. Uh, just, I just, I, all I did that decade was focus on work. I didn't do anything else. And this one's starting off pretty much the same, but 
um, with some differences. But, you know, when you say like they don't have the same love and the same work ethic and responsibility and the pride in the profession, you know what? I kind of understand that. I really do. Maybe they're maybe they're overreacting and maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. But I got to tell you, we were sold a lot of things that just didn't really end up true. Didn't really end up true. All right. With that in mind, I think I've been on doing this for about an hour. I, maybe I'll have one more and then we'll go to the uh, the paid ones. Uh, just watch the Woodstock documentary on Netflix and the shit was crazy. Do you know anyone personally that went? I do not know anyone. I think about Woodstock 99. I do not know anyone that personally went. Oh, someone asks, ask Anik, because we did a sit down with John Anik, how many days he anticipates being in the hospital when Colby sees him? Oh, we, we talked about it. We talked about it. But I don't think he has to do that much worrying. Although, I will say, um, maybe I'm reading into it. Okay? Could be reading into it. But I asked him, did anyone from the UFC call you when uh, Colby did that? Because he, what he told me was, like, all these fighters reached out. Like, all these fighters. And, uh, you know, fans and everyone else, like, hey, man, I got your back. Are you okay? Do you need some help? Blah, blah, blah. He said it was, like, overwhelming and amazing. And then I asked, was there anyone from UFC front office that asked? Uh, and he said no. <laughs> In fact, he had to send them uh, information about it. Um, that's interesting. All right. With that in mind, with that in mind, let's uh, let's get to the uh, paid ones. If you don't want to, you don't have to. It's fine. But if you do, we'll get to them now. All right. From Tripler, Tripler J, where does Kayla Harrison go from here? I'm going to guess she goes, well, Cyborg is what? She is under matching rights conditions with Bellator. So I'm guessing PFL is probably trying to make that. Didn't she tell Ariel she's done in like November? Or she's done like this is the last year. She's got two fights left. Whatever it is, she'll either do the two fights or the contract will expire in the in November and then she'll be on her way. Yeah, I mean, PFL can't facilitate her uh, not easily enough. Thank you, Red Hawkins. Othello put this up, but someone else paid for it. I guess I missed it. Meet Luke Thomas, part uh, epistemological, uh, part anthropological, but 100%. I think you mean rock ribbed for combat sports. I try, bro. I try. Would you rather have BC's malicious smile that sends shutters down parole officers' spines <laughs> or Brendan's unfathomable IQ? Why are we taking shots? Huh? We don't have to do that. Um, BC's smile does make people smile, even though I find it very strange. So maybe that, but... And by the way, MMA Sauvage, are you French? Izzy's coaches have expressed wanting him to flow more offensively like he used to and other analysts have complained about his recent defensiveness do you think it's likely we'll see this turn i think you might you know remember we were all kind of like skeptical every time you know tyron woodley after it was pretty clear that his career was or his mma career was coming to a close at least in ufc every time he got there and promised like this time would be different you're like yeah right but then against like what was it the colby fight or maybe it was the luke fight whichever one i think it was the luke fight the Luke fight, yeah, because not the Colby one, but in the Luke fight, he came out there like he he went out on his shield. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not. He was long in the tooth, and I think he probably knew that was going to be the end. Izzy still has, I think, many fights left in front of him. These are not identical situations. I'm pointing out though, 
could it be where he's just got his back up against the wall and he re- I mean, he's even said this is his eight mile moment, the whole nine yards. Could that really compel him to just go out there and then throw caution to the wind? That seems unlikely, but you know, put himself at more risk to get finished in order to get more offense out of himself. Yeah, sure. I definitely, I, in fact, I think that's almost likely. The question is how reckless, how insane will it all get? All right. Uh, last time you mentioned a professor of yours wrote a book uh, that there is no design in evolutionary science. What's the book's name? Great question. I will tell you. His name is Paul Davies. I'm not even sure. Does he still teach at, at William & Mary? I don't know. Um, let's see. is here we go what's eating the universe no where the fuck is this book hold on here we go okay yes this was the guy this is my guy where is it hold on he has several books the one I am talking about is called Norms of Nature, Naturalism, and the Nature of Functions, MIT Press, 2001. Uh, I will show you him. I'll put this up. I hope he doesn't mind. Yeah, it's all on the internet, so I'm not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like blowing him up. This is him. This is my professor, Paul Davies. Um, great guy. Smart as shit. Blew me away numerous, numerous, numerous times. Uh, that's him. And the, I'll pull up the book here so you can see it. Uh, it's a tough read. Uh, it's not an easy read. So this is not a read for people who are, you know, I'll put up the, yeah, here we go. This is it. This is it right here. Norms of nature. It's got one rating. I mean, this is, let's listen to the description here. Let me read it to you very quickly. The components of living systems strike us as functional as for the sake of certain ends and as endowed with specific norms of performance. The mammalian eye, for example, has the function of perceiving and processing light and possession of this property tempts us to claim that token eyes are supposed to perceive and process light. That is, we tend to evaluate the performance of token eyes against the norm described in the attributed functional property, hence the norms of nature. What then are they? Whence do they arise? Out of what natural properties or relations are they constituted? In the book, he argues against the prevailing view that natural norms are constituted as some form of historical historical success, usually natural selection. He defends the view that functions are nothing more than the effects that contribute to the exercise of some more general systemic capacity. Natural functions exist insofar as the components of natural systems contribute to the exercise of systemic capacities. That is what he believes. So uh, rather than like your eye is designed to do this, and this is a cloaked form almost of intelligent design, its function is in this larger capacity within the systems biologically. Fun book. Light reading. Actually, it's a great book. I love it. But uh, it's not It's not a, you know, it's not a beach read. Uh, okay. I've seen you talk about Carl Hart a lot. Are there other books or intellectuals who have helped form your worldview about drug policy in general? Cheers from Brazil. Sure. Here's another one I can show you. Um, let's look at this one. From one Paul to another. I keep telling everyone about this book. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, let's do this one. Here we go. So this is not exactly what you're asking, but I'm going to show you both of them. Uh, let's see. 
Okay, there's two books I'm going to show you because they are related. So here's the first one. The Anti-Doping Crisis to Sport Causes, Consequences, and Solution. It's written by Paul DeMio and Werner Muller. That's these two gentlemen here. Uh, this book is a history of anti-doping, uh, where it comes from, what were the conditions under which these institutions were made, and this fervor under which that, that was the underpinning of these institutions, and uh, what are some of the problems with it, and where are we now? Have they worked? Does any of this work? Blah, 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 blah. That's a great, I mean, that's, to me, that's almost like you can't understand anti-doping without it. You know, everyone thinks like it's obvious why anti-doping is around. We have these games. We need to test people for drugs. Like, that's the end of it. It's, it is so not that simple at all. There's significantly more components that go into it. And he traces the history and why they're all kind of fucked up. The other one is a fun book by a guy who is a writer at Reason Magazine, who I disagree with on a number of different issues, but saying yes in defense of drug use came out in 2004 can't recommend it enough it's a very simple argument about what kinds of risks we're allowed to tolerate as people as uh inside communities inside places where laws have to be passed and um there have to be governing capacities and what does medical science say about the interplay between all of these and um what should we really allow and what he really begins to show is that not only is drug use something that we show on some level obviously there are any like anything else there are intelligent and non-intelligent use cases, but there are far more intelligent use cases than people realize. And really what I cannot overstate is between Jacob Sullum and Carl Hart and in the anti-doping book itself from Paul DeMio and Werner Muller, let me state one common thread between all three of them, although they cover vastly different things. All of them show substantial amounts of evidence about how media hysteria that turned out to be totally false greatly exaggerated certain threats or whatever reefer madness but writ large much beyond that has affected what laws have been passed both in terms of anti-doping and then the regular sort of street drugs and everything else you cannot understand how much you've been just absolutely given false information without understanding how these laws have been passed by virtue of media fervor that was routinely routinely either exaggerated or just simply not true and then the disparity in between uh, crack laws and cocaine laws in the 80s is another example of this. Um, but it goes on and on and on. Like, you can't understand how anti-doping institutions were created in the early 90s until you understand the media fervor that came from various scandals, a lot of which was true, a lot of which was just totally made up, right? So there you go. Okay. Luke, would you consider putting YouTube in dark mode when you're highlighting the questions? Blinds me when I watch on TV. Yes, people have been asking for that. I will do that. I promise. Othello tells me every week to do it, and then I sit down and I always forget. We will make a note next time. Next week, we'll put it in dark mode, I think. Make it better for you. Do you think if Dana committed to promoting kickboxing in the same way he has done power slap, he would unlock the apathy kickboxing experiences? That's an interesting one. It would certainly be a better use of his time. But could he make more of a difference? I I wonder about that. I, I, I'll give Dana some credit. I've said it before. Whatever else our difference is, um, he is a true believer. Like, he does love MMA. He is... Um, 
I, I watched him during the post tough boom go radio station to radio station, newspaper to newspaper, city to city, mayor to mayor, governor to governor, and preach and proselytize. Yes, about the UFC product, but you know, there's just no denying he's a clear MMA fan and has been for some time. How excited he is to be an MMA fan these days remains to be seen, but certainly during that period, there was just no doubt. If he had that exact same enthusiasm for kickboxing, what could he do with it? I still am skeptical that kickboxing can work here. I mean, a lot of smart people have really tried with a lot of money and just not gotten very far. Um, so it would definitely be a better use of his time, and I would be much more supportive if he were. But even then, I, 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 America is a place where so many sports live at so many different levels. We have, we have numerous different pro leagues here. We, I mean, college sport, amateur sports here is a multi-billion dollar industry for both women and men across, I mean, numerous sports. I mean, the amount of sports that this country facilitates rivals what any country would do anywhere. You know, um, just the amount of athletics and the amount of programs and the amount of just different ways you can be a pro here or just be, you know, a high-level celebrated athlete is, is quite dramatic. So in that sense, you'd think there would be bandwidth, but there just doesn't appear to be. I would love to see it. How about that? I would love to see it. I would love, I wish he was doing that. I really do. Thank you, sir. Do you think Bellator's competitiveness is overplayed by MMA hardcores? I, n I guess you're writing, I never thought Moose could beat Izzy. And I feel like that this was the boogeyman for Bellator for a while. Well, okay. Let's be clear about this, dude. The UFC is a $12 billion organization. Bellator's outlays each year are somewhere in the order of $40 million. Now, that's not necessarily what they're worth. They're probably worth more than that. But they are a fraction the size of the UFC. like and a, and a small one at that. I think they are very important for the MMA ecosystem. I do believe that. And, of course, they've got some very high-level guys. And, no, Moose was never going to beat Izzy. But Johnny Eblen could. Johnny Eblen could. I'm not even saying Johnny Eblen's the best 185er in the world. There's a, certainly a debate to be had about that. But, dude, Johnny, Reb Johnny Eblen can wrestle his ass off for 25 minutes if need be. And he can strike a little bit, too. Yeah, dude, he'd be a real tough fucking fight for all those guys. So, But it's a different question. You're just asking organizationally, like, the difference between them. Dude, Bellator is, in for all intents and purposes, it's got good divisions it's better than it has been in some time, but it's not really a competitor to the UFC. Competitor to PFL, competitor to one and other players, but it's not a UFC competitor. There is no UFC competitor other than, you know, that the UFC and WWE have an overlapping fan base and that their dollars might go more towards a WWE pay-per-view than a UFC. That's really the only kind of competition. They don't have competition otherwise, other than what you know, similar fans would do with their money. But in terms of the MMA space, what orgs are their competitors? They don't exist. They don't exist. The UFC is in such a dominant position. They, they simply don't, they don't have a rival. So, um, you know, do the, does the, do the hardcore sometimes play that up? I think there might be a little bit of that because it used to be much truer back in the day, like when there was IFL and, and there was Elite XC, and there was UFC, and there was Pride. And then after a while, there was Sengoku and Dream. And there was all these, you know, but even before that, Rumble on the Rock and Icon Sport. And it was all, when there was a little bit more parody among the promotions, 
that was a little bit truer of a claim you could make. And I think that legacy has kind of lived on a little bit in some of the long-standing diehards. But in general, no. In general, uh, I don't think. I mean, again, Patricio Pitbull is an interesting character. I think he could do really well in any organization. Johnny Eblen, I think, would be a very tough fight for Pereira. Uh, different situation with Whitaker, but a uh, tough fight for Izzy. I mean, just simply no doubt about it. Um, and again, that light heavyweight division that they have over there is pretty good relative to the UFCs. But the size and scope and the importance and the relevance of Bellator to UFC. I mean, do guys, UFC is being sued for antitrust concerns. They're, you know, they don't really have a competitor almost by definition. Your thoughts on body positivity and health outcomes in the U.S. Well, health outcomes are terrible in the U.S., but this is really basic and clear. I'm not one of these people that believes that like obesity and you can be obese and like be really healthy. I mean, there might be a small sliver of people who can fit that category, but in general, even with just with COVID, like even people who are not like, you know, we, I have, I'm sure different opinions on COVID than many of you. And I'm not here to rehash them. I don't want to do that, but even most people agree if you're overweight, that's a big risk factor for having worse COVID outcomes, right? Like even most people agree that that's a real thing. Hey, if you're reasonably healthy and reasonably young, I think a lot of people think you should be probably fine. Again, not to rehash the debate, but that is being overweight a risk factor for it. Yeah, it is. And that goes on and on. That's simply not the only one. There's many more. But at the same time, the research is very clear. Uh, maybe certain people really like that negative reinforcement as a way to motivate them into action. But the vast majority of people simply do not respond to body shaming as a way to lose weight. If you actually want people to lose weight and you actually want better health outcomes, it's important to be kind to people. It's important to be humane. Um, and it's important to be honest, you know, about, I think some of the realities of what being obese can do to you. Uh, but being mean to them uh, as a way to like show your strength, it doesn't, doesn't work, man. We've seen it. And like, you know, this is how I grew up. This is how my parents talked to me, you know, not about body, body positivity per se, but like, uh, you know, just effort or things I did, like it was very much hardcore, you know, negative reinforcement in a lot of ways. That's how the Marine Corps was. Like I'm used to it, you know? And again, certain people can thrive in those environments. That is real. But the research is clear, man. Being shitty to people does not get them to lose weight. So what's the point? If the, it, it, You shouldn't be shitty to people anyway. But if, if, it, if, if A, you're being shitty to people, and B, there's no evidence that actually does anything, what are you doing it for? Looking at Bellator 293 to, to 296, it looks like Scott has given up or is dismayed with CBS looking to sell the promotion. Well, let me pull those up. I don't... Uh, by the way, yes, I can confirm that um, either Bellator is going to be sold. I mean, it's not – I don't know if it's going to be sold. Let me back up a step. It, it could be potentially sold or um, certain stakes of it could be potentially sold or it might not be sold at all. Um, but I know that there are ongoing discussions, and I've heard some of who the players are. These are big companies. But, okay, let me look at uh, 293. So 293 was the last one. Yeah, that was not my favorite one. Hold on. Let me go back here. So then we have Bellator 294. This is the one that's going to be in Hawaii and 295. So 294 and 295, that's not, I think, Coker punting. I wouldn't agree. Um, in fact, 295 has Stotts versus Mix, which is an awesome fight. Uh, McFarlane versus Watanabe, that's okay. 
It's big for that area. Uh, Pico is back. That's kind of big. And then you got Horiguchi, Kyoji Horiguchi versus Ray Borg. That's a good fight. Mads Burnell's on the card. Medeiros is on the card. Kai Kamaka the third's on the card. There's some interesting fights on that card. But the point is they, they split those over two different nights so they could make one and make a better card. Fair enough. Yeah, that's fine. What was the question here? Do I think that he's given up? No. I, I, I personally I will say this. I have found myself... Um, I disagree with a lot of Bellator strategy. I disagree with a lot of the way in which they decide to do things. I mean, I disagree with a lot of promotions on that level. I mean, Bellator is hardly unique, but in the sense that I, um, I, I, I don't give them a pass. Like to me, a, a lot of the problems uh, that they're, I mean, here, here's, here's a basically a major problem for them right now in MMA media. Like one of the major problems is if you produce Bellator content, it will be very difficult to get viewership around it for like an interview or an article you write. And you could always write something like what Conor McGregor tweeted and it will do much better. So like there's a real opportunity cost there. That's sort of one problem. And uh, it permeates kind of, uh, it permeates kind of everything. And it's just, I'm not exactly sure if Bellator leadership share the same concerns that I have regarding the visibility and the enthusiasm around the product. Um, That's just my opinion. You know, I disagree with a lot of what they do. I think they are important, and I do think they got some good fighters and some good divisions, and they do put on good shows. And also, that show on June 16th is going to be killer. Uh, but I also think they do too many shows. They do too many shows. Like that one on Friday probably could have been packaged and some other ones. But here's the other part, too, that you have to realize. There's one more thing that I really will defend Bellator on, which is you got to understand their role. Um they're in a weird spot because they've got like these really A-level guys like Vadim Nemkov or Patricio Pitbull. And so fans automatically want to compare them to the UFC, but they're just radically different positions. But the reality is this. Remember, their outlay is about 40 million a year in fighter pay, 40 million years. If let's say Bellator, let's say, let's say I could do Thanos and I could snap my fingers and Bellator goes away, right? Do I think that the UFC is going to pick up all those guys? Like definitely not. You know, they'll they'll pick up some. They would pick up. They would pick up some. They would they would pick up Vadim. They would pick up Patricio. You know, obviously there's a bunch. Of, they would pick up a, f- a fair amount of the guys, maybe, but like not all of them. And like, where would the rest of those guys go? They would go to maybe some would go to ones. I think I think the vast majority would go to like other regional shows or whatever. It would be really bad, really bad, for the MMA economy to lose them. Not that that's necessarily in play. I'm just sort of pointing out again if I could do the Thanos thing. I'm trying to point out that like there's a value that they occupy that has nothing to do with whether or not they're serving fans top-level MMA every time. What they do is they give a lot of money to fighters that other orgs would not pick up in their absence. And so for that reason, they're actually very important for like there's a swath of fighters that they cover both at the high end and sometimes in the low and the middle end that um it would you know some would survive if they went away but a lot would i think be much worse off and so for that reason bellator's good for the uh, for the mma economy you want them there i just feel like there are ways personally speaking um i would do things uh very differently but you know there you are is kumaru done uh, for a champ yes a good place to pick up mma in dc beta or urban boxing i don't know much about urban boxing um for mma in dc it's tough man 
if you wanted to do like amateur level, there's actually a lot of good places where I used to train Beta Academy. They have a really good amateur, I think, amateur level program. If you want to be a pro, I, I, that's a different kind of consideration. Um, and I know that there's some, you, you know, Lloyd Irvin probably has some of the better uh, MMA fighters in the region, but of course he's got a bit of a, um, how do I want to say this? He's got a checkered past, basically, um, with the uh, alleged rape that some of his previous students, uh, well, they were found not guilty, but the trial was a bit of a show. Anyway, and then his own sordid history beyond that. So, you know, there was some controversy there. Um, so, I, you know, for pro-level MMA... 50 50 with ryan hall but i don't know how much of an mma program they have there certainly you could get really good uh training there very high level i don't i don't know about pro level mma though i'm oh you know for pro level mma you'd have to go to the suburbs maybe like kaizen or um um clinch academy or uh ground control in baltimore or um you know there's there's some of the smaller teams in northern virginia and then Baltimore and then parts of Maryland that I think have some pro MMA guys that are pretty good. You mentioned in the past, you absolutely despise pro wrestling, which I respect. Will you ever really like, Oh, in the, as a kid. Yeah. Like in the eighties, every kid liked Hulk Hogan, every kid liked the ultimate warrior or whatever, Andre, the giant, whatever, all that stuff. Yeah. As a kid, definitely. Of course, of course. But you know, I grew, I think from there. Would the, would you want to see Izzy versus Jones catch weight? See so what he looks on Saturday. If he can deal with the heft of a guy like that, then yes. But otherwise, probably not. Although if there was a time I thought it could be more competitive, but I'm a little less convinced by that now. Would Megan Anderson have been champ if he had, she had stayed in Australia and tried with Vulcan Company? Maybe. She didn't get bad training. You know, she didn't get bad training. She had good training partners. She had good coaches. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I mean, she never would have gotten it. But it wasn't like she came over here and like trained with chumps. She trained with, with quality teams uh, and quality partners. It's, you know, not everyone's cut out for it. Maybe she, maybe she would have been. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to say that, but it's not like she came over here and made some dramatic mistake or something. A common theme in your answers is believing in proportion to the evidence. I remember from a previous live chat, there was a book that helped shape this for you. Do you remember the name? Gosh, I really don't. Do you guys remember the name? <sighs> I don't remember which book this might have been. Mm. I'll talk to Othello after this. I don't really remember. I don't really remember. People say how Pereira should move up in weight, but forget how we fought three times at 185 in 2022 and four times uh, in a calendar year and never missed weight. Why do you think the media? Because he's huge and it looks like that he can only do that for so much longer. He can do the cut, but his margin of error is slipping and he's, excuse me, what is he, 30, 36? Like, the concern is real. When are we getting WWE superstars in the slap dick league? I fuck God. I saw Dana being like, you know, you got, you got WWE. Amazing. You got UFC, the fan base, the passion behind that. Amazing. And you got this virality with slap. I'm like, bro, you're going to put slap in the same league as a $9 billion and $12 billion organization. <laughs> Word. Okay. What would you choose as your walkout song? Years ago, it would have been uh, Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths. I think now it might be like, um, 
man, I was thinking about that the other day. It, I, I wouldn't have just one unless I could think of a really iconic one. You know, Dying Fetus in the Trenches is a great one. There's another one. Let me tell you this one. Let's see. Let's see. I want to tell you this one. This one might be my... Here we go. Um, it's from uh, it's from Toto la mom po, uh, mom posina. It's called El Pescador, like the fisherman, but it's not that version. It's the Uproot Andy remix. I know that's a lot to 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 give away here. Uh, let me see here. Turn this down so I don't get this one. It's this song. I'm going to get, I'm going to lose my thing here. I don't want to do that. Uh, it's this song, but it's the Uproot Andy remix. Dig around. You might figure out why. Non-MMA related. I'm currently considering going National Guard to pursue my civilian career and my military career. Any thoughts on the Guard? Yeah, do it. Specifically 19 Special Forces Group, if you know. Uh, he'd be an officer. Um, yeah, do it. Do it. It'd be good for you. Do it. Other than sports, I also enjoy listening to... Do you think Donald Trump will really serve prison time? No, I do not think he will serve prison time. Those are class E felonies. Um, I, you know... Guys, what have I said a million times on this? And I've seen so many people be like, you know, uh, well, we got to throw Clinton and, and all the other ones in jail. And I'm like, throw them in jail. By all means. Like... Guys, it doesn't really matter, and you know what I'm about to say is true. You know it. And sometimes it hasn't been always evenly and consistently true, but over the course of time, you know what I'm about to tell you is true. We don't punish rich and powerful people in this country very well. You know that. You know that. And if you, even if you like Trump and you think the charges are frivolous, fine. Um, I have a feeling that he's probably going to either get off completely or... Um, he will be found guilty of some charges, but find a way to work out some kind of penalty where he doesn't spend a day in jail. I'd be very surprised. Very, very, very surprised. And there's also a question about the merits of the case and how strong it is. That's up to that's up to the uh, Alvin Bragg to prosecute, and we'll see if he can do it. But no, I don't think whether he was innocent or guilty. Right. I don't I would be very surprised if he ever saw the inside of a jail cell. The one that's a little bit more on that on that charge, the one that's a little bit more worth your time to watch is the Jack Smith um, investigation into January 6th. And, you know, because Mike Pence is not going to um, appeal the requirement for him to testify. Um, so there's that. And also the one in Georgia with election interference because they got the fucking guy on tape basically being like, I need you to find 11,000 votes, you know. Um, those might get him in trouble. The one in New York, or, or I should say the accumulative weight might get him in trouble, right? If you are so encumbered with legal problems, even if you are rich and famous, maybe you'll overcome them. But at least on this one, and given some of the broader realities about who he is and the broader realities about the American justice system, as well as the potential weaknesses of the case. No, I don't think he'll spend a day in jail. What's interesting to me is uh, what this means electorally, because it forces guys like DeSantis to do what he said, which was, you know, I'm not going to assist in any kind of extradition request. Now, there didn't need to be, so he was just kind of 
maybe bluffing, I don't know, although that would be unconstitutional. But the point I'm trying to make is um, he has to sort of thread this needle where he says a bunch of nice things about Trump and at the same time field insults from him. And every time Trump goes on the attack about DeSantis, DeSantis' numbers go down and Trump's go up. So it's a really, like, how do you combat that guy? That's a really weird dynamic that, you know, good luck to uh, Ron DeSantis and Asa Hutchinson and Nikki Haley and everyone else who wants that. As someone who's trying to get more into studying fight film, what do you do before a big matchup or what would you suggest to someone new? Oh, do I have it on me? Yes. Hold on. Okay. Let me show you. Look what I have cooked up for you, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Mm. I went <laughs> I went piece by piece, round by round, exchange by exchange. I took meticulous notes on everything. So you're asking, what do you do before a big matchup? Well, let's say a big assignment anyway. And what would you suggest to someone new? So let me tell you what my method is a little bit. And I don't again, I don't know if I have the best method. This is just what I like to do. Some people just like to point out individual things. Hey, they've got certain kind of tendencies in these situations, and let's just go find those and, you know, see what this person does and make a determination about it. I like to take a more of a holistic view, or at least in this particular case, what did I do for this one? So I got an assignment from Showtime, right? And the assignment from Showtime was, we want to see, you know, if you can show some kind of evolution in Tank's game and as part of a scouting report. The fight against Ryan Garcia is what? It's open stance. Tank is southpaw. Ryan Garcia is orthodox, which means their lead hands are going to be touching. And they're going to be, you know, they're like this. Not like this, but like this, right? So I looked through Hector Garcia. His last opponent was, of course, another southpaw. So it was two southpaws. So that one doesn't count. But the ones before that, it was from Yuriokis Gamboa, Leo Santa Cruz, Isak Cruz, Mario Barrios, and then ultimately Roly Romero. All of those were open stance. And that was a pivotal run in his career that ended up being, I think, either like early in the pandemic to most recently, like right up until the Hector Garcia fight, Roley Romero was, you know, relatively recently. And of course, you can see all the tats on there. So I said, let's take a look at how he handles open stance considerations from the Gamboa fight. And I didn't pick anything after Gamboa got injured. It's only up until like the second or third round where he gets injured. Just that stuff. And then all the fights after that one, minus Hector Garcia. So it ends up being five fights. What did he do? And those are different guys, different heights, different uh, different weight classes. Like the Barrios fight was at 140. Other ones were at you know 135. And some other ones were on the, that way as well. What did he do in those open stance considerations? And so that I went and I just watched what I was looking for. Let me see in these five fights how he handled pivoting in, pivoting out. Uh, what did he do with the jab? What did he do with lateral movement? What happens when he gets trapped in a corner? What what combinations work on him? Which ones don't? How does he respond to pressure? Does he lead? Does he counter? Does he circle a certain way? Like all this stuff. Those are the components that I'm looking for inside that dimension. And I go around. Let me see if I can show you some of my notes. Just give you a sense of things. I go round by round. And I don't take necessarily notes on every single round because sometimes it's a repeat of things or you don't learn a whole lot. Um, here we go. 
Yeah. So these are my notes on all these fights round by round. Like these are every single round time stamped. I time stamp everything. And it just goes and goes and goes. All of that are just notes on every single fight, overall findings and everything else, right? So I start with a premise about what I'm looking for. Like what, are the, what, what am I seeking here? What's the assignment? Uh, I told you what it was. Let's pick the fights. I pick the ones I want. And then here, I, okay, I'm examining this context. I figure out what he shows me in them, what the evolution is, what he does well, what he does not do well, what are some common problems, what are some strengths, and whatnot, and then that's how I go. That that is my that is my process. I just take notes all the way through, and then I can find stuff. And in fact, let me show you this. Hold on. So let me show you this. This is my editing window for. Do I still have battery on this thing? Yes, I do. Sweet. This is my editing window, and I took out a lot, so you can see here. I've got all these clips that all feature everything I'm looking for the whole way through that match up that same premise that I'm trying to solve for. That's how it works for me. That is my process. And yes, I know that was iMovie because it's actually, for what I need, it's actually easier to edit in iMovie than uh, Final Cut. For other ones, I use Final Cut. But um, that's that's for this assignment, that was my process. And I cannot fucking wait for you to see it. How do you think the UFC would be with Scott Coker as the president? Um, I don't know if that's a good fit. I don't know if that's a good fit. I think that he's plays an important part in the overall MMA ecosystem, but you, the UFC, I think they could learn some lessons from some of the ways in which he prefers to matchmake, but I don't know that he's the right person for that job. WWE screwed Cody Major at Mania. So pissed at Vince. That sucks, I guess. Going to Broomfield for one. Oh, have fun, bro. It's my first MMA event and my first time going to a big venue in general. What of advice? Yes, uh, get there early. Um, if you've already got tickets, I don't know what to tell you, but go again. it's the same thing I tell everyone. everyone. There's going to be weigh-ins. Go to them. There's going to be fan activation or fighter activation things all around town. Go to them. Still show up for the prelims. I mean, just do all that stuff there. Get some merch. Have a good time. You're just going to watch fights, man. Like, you don't need advice. Just go have fun, you know? How will being publicly traded affect fighter pay? I think it will put pressure on them to keep fighter pay low. You think Wall Street wants guys to get paid a lot? <laughs> Word? <laughs> they want Dana to get paid a lot. They want Vince to get paid a lot. They want Ari Emanuel to get paid a lot. They want, you know, Lawrence Epstein and Hunter Campbell. They want all those guys paid. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But fighters, they don't want those guys. I mean, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Like, they're not going to put pressure on UFC to bump up costs, you know. Who wins a fight between Ronald McDonald and the Burger King? Burger King. And remember, don't wake up with the king. Okay, I won't. Thoughts on Paul Heyman shooting on Conor McGregor? I don't know what the fuck that means. Guys, I don't watch pro wrestling, and I'm not gonna. Give five bucks to BC for me so he can stop slandering you about Super Chat. <laughs> All right. 
I bought him a beer the other day anyway, so he owes me. And then thanks, bro. All right. That is it, guys. Uh, thank you so much, uh, per usual. We're going to put this on the podcast platforms tonight. Thumbs up on the video. Email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. And I know some of you emailed me last week. I still haven't gotten to it. I will get to it. I'm so sorry. It has been a rough few days. We got so much done in, in uh, Miami. But um, I will get back to you. I promise. Thank you very much. All right, boys and girls. You're the best. I appreciate it. We're out. Until next time, stay frosty.